BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I would argue the biggest driver of violence in our city is retaliation. On the streets, they call it getting, getting my lick back. And because almost no one um, goes to, goes, gets, gets arrested um, for shooting someone or, or, or killing them, when you don't have justice in the criminal uh, justice system, you get, you get street justice. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. Happy New Year. My guest this week is former U.S. Education Secretary and Chicago Public Schools CEO before that, Arnie Duncan. You, Arnie, welcome. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Thanks so much for having me. You are the founder of Chicago Cred and managing partner of the Emerson Collective. You run this nonprofit for at-risk youth, which stands for Creating Real Economic Destiny. It operates in 15 of the city's most violent neighborhoods, targeting 500 young men ages 17 to 24 who are disconnected from work and school and most in danger of being victims or perpetrators of gun violence. You've had a lot of success and you have with you today two of those men. One of them is Billy Moore, who runs your alumni program. He's also the man who shot and killed Chicago prep basketball star Benji Wilson in the 80s. Also with you is Bilal Evans, who spent years in prison for a crime he says he didn't commit. All of you, welcome and Happy New Year. Arnie, why don't you get started and introduce these men and why you brought them along today? Sure, I appreciate the opportunity. I first brought them because they want to start their own podcast. I thought, Fran, they could learn from you. <laughs> the <tricks laughs> I, of the trade. I doubt that. <laughs> any, any tips you have would be great, but in all seriousness, um, you know, Billy and I have an interesting history because, you know, Benji was a, a friend of mine and I grew up, you know, playing with him. But, you know, Billy served 20 years, has, has come out and has dedicated his life to saving lives. And the work he has done um, first at Iman, which is one of our amazing community partners, and now uh, leading all of our work of our alumni is simply extraordinary. Um, I was able to witness the evening 34 years to the day uh, when, he, when he killed Benji where he reconciled with Benji's brothers. And that was one of the most powerful and emotional, you know, evenings I've ever spent. And to see his heart and hard work and commitment to saving lives. Um, he teaches me something every day. Um, Bilal is like his brother. Bilal was an amazing um, worker at, at uh, Iman and uh, now is doing his own work in Englewood. Um, very tragically, uh, Fran, you know, Bilal went to jail for 15 years for a crime. He did not commit. Happy to talk about that. I'll let him talk about it. And then right before Christmas, while he was driving um, with his with his uh, wife and two young children, um, he was shot through the head and miraculously he survived. 
Um, when I went to see him afterwards, I was, you know, to say I was shook was, it was an understatement. And I sort of asked, you know, what, what do you want to see happen here? You know, do you want revenge? Do you want retaliation? And he said, he said, no, I want to use this as leverage to, to create more peace uh, in, in the community. So these are just two remarkable leaders, experts, folks who may not have a PhD on paper, but have a PhD in the streets. And they understand exactly what we need to do to get our city to a safer place. That happened this Christmas, just a few weeks ago, you're saying? Yeah, but Bilal, Bilal tell her what happened. I had spent that day. Uh, I had uh, one of my participants was was um, needing he had needed money, and um, and I had told him I was going to bring the money to him. And so when I came, I mean, it, I kind of like prolonged it because I really didn't want to get up and go out the house that day, and um, but I wanted to keep my word. So to to ensure that I was going to come right back in the house, I told my family, everybody, to get ready. So we'll go, to, you know, make this, you know, drop this brother off some money, and then. Um, We'll all, you know, he didn't come back in the house. Um, unbeknownst to me at the time, there, there, you know, of course, I'm, 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 I'm always aware that there's always a, a conflict with the different factions in the street, and so they were already going back and forth with different people on social media, um, and t- telling them to pull up or whatever. So when I, when I pulled up on the block, I, I, I went up to the door, gave the guy the money, stepped in the door, gave the guy the money, and left out. And when I left out, the car was thinking that I was one of the young guys and they followed my car. And as I approached 67th and Morgan, um, they shot they shot at me more than like 20 times, striking me in the, in the back of my head with a, um, with a nine millimeter. But by the grace of God, the bullet um, hit me at an angle and, and, and exited without doing any serious damage. Were you hospitalized? I left out the hospital about three hours later. Oh my goodness. Wow. That, that seems like a miracle to me. It is. It was, it was absolutely a Christmas miracle. Fran, and, and just to, I mean, the depth of this, and again, it's important for your listeners, if you to understand, um, the car shot them up at a, at a stoplight. The, the only reason Bilal survived is he leaned forward to, to get a piece of chicken. And had he not leaned forward, he would have been killed. That's why the bullet went through the back of his head, not, not through his head. Um, the car shoots him up at the stoplight, shoots up the car, turns around to come back and finish the job, shoot again. Bilal's trying to cover up his son and his wife gets out with their little baby, holds the baby up to show folks that this is the wrong car. You have the wrong people. And thank goodness the, the shooters, you know, turn away and um, don't come back to finish what they started. But within a couple hours, you know, Bilal knew who had done it. They, they apologized. And again, rather than seeking revenge, rather than doing whatever, he's working with that group to create create peace. And they knew they they knew they'd done the wrong thing. Same thing happened when when Billy's son tragically was killed a couple of years ago, uh, shot shot multiple times outside of Foster Park. What Billy has said repeatedly is rather than him seeking revenge, that if the young man who killed his son came into our program, he would take him under his wing and mentor him, um, because you can't ask for forgiveness, you, you can't seek reconciliation. And redemption if you can't give it. So these are just two extraordinary leaders who have dealt with unbelievable tragedy, but again, have dedicated their lives to making a difference. And Billy, you dealt tragedy. You were responsible for tragedy and you've spent the rest of your life trying to undo your mistake. Yes, Fran. And I'm glad that you uh, use the word mistake because that was the greatest mistake that I made. Uh, the confrontation that took place with me and Benji Wilson that resulted in him losing his life. 
uh, it was a mistake because it was two young men who I think didn't have the emotional uh, tools to really resolve a conflict. He was 17 and I was 16. He wasn't backing down. I wasn't backing down. And it just tragically ended and Benji, you know, losing his life. And I went away for 20 years. And because of the incident being so sensationalized, um, you know, people really, uh, you know, had a lot of hate for me. Uh, they, they, they basically saw the crime. They saw the loss of Benji, the promise that everybody knew that he was destined to, you know, achieve and I was responsible for taking that away. And I just wanted people to understand it was a mistake. That wasn't me. And I, I wasn't going to allow the mistake that I made at 16 to be what defined me as a person. And what was I the really, original beef, if I, might, if I might ask you? So uh, initially, Benji uh, had pushed me out of his way from behind and kept walking. Uh, I think he was having some type of conflict with his girlfriend who was walking with him. And as a young man, you know, I, I basically demanded, uh, 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 you know, an excuse me. And he turned around and in no, no uncertain terms said he wasn't apologizing. And, you know, words led to the unfortunate tragedy of, you know, me shooting Benji and him dying. Um, and this is all before social media, where you can fuel a beef and have a tiff with somebody without anybody seeing anybody. And then the next thing you know, there's a shooting. Absolutely. Uh, and I think, you know, when young men for me, I lost my father 14 months before that. It was a very important time in my life where I was kind of really trying to understand who I was. And your identity is so much rooted in the perception of other people especially when it comes to a perceived disrespect towards you. And I felt disrespected. There were people standing around. Uh, Benji wasn't going to stand down. And it just unfortunately led to, uh, as we all know, Benji, you know, losing his life. Uh, and as a result of that, I went away for 20 years. And I just made up my mind that, you know, I wasn't going to allow myself to, to make those type of mistakes that will cost me or anyone else uh, those type of consequences. And I just dedicated my time to trying to help young men who come up the same way I came up that really didn't have that sense of direction or a sense of identity of who they are to understand that you don't have to be, be secure enough in who you can be without allowing something outside of you to define that. Can I ask you both before we let you go, because we're going to move on to Arnie, but before we let you go, Tell me briefly, both of you, first, Bilal, what does your experience, your redemption, your forgiveness, your willingness to reach out, what does it tell Chicago about how we need to approach this unbelievable explosion of violence that we're seeing? Bilal? Well, okay. Well, I, I, in a brief summation, I think that there's an old saying that um, it takes a village to raise a child. But when the when the village sees the children as invisible, they'll burn it down to feel its warmth. And that's an example of what's happening today. And that there's a lot of there's a there's a great appalling silence and apathy that has been been growing for years. And this is the 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 result of it, of of not really showing 
an, an acknowledgement that there's a group of a group of people in the community that have been disadvantaged for so disadvantaged for so long, and 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 become has become invisible for so long that you know it's it, this problem is not a new problem. It has been festering for decades, and the fix is going to take decades. It's going to take a, a and, and and don't take this this word lightly. A reparation style of reinvestment. From 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 kindergarten to the to the to the to the juvenile justice system to the prison system to the education system, we should institutionalize behavior, helpful cognitive behavior therapy, and 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 this this has to be something that that can't be done in a in silos. It has it takes um, everyone to come together and work for this this change in this process as a whole. Billy Moore. Yes, I think uh, exactly what Bilal said. It's going to take a two-pronged approach. We first, what we're doing now through the intervention, we have to scale that up. We have to touch more young men. We have to have capacity to make sure that we reach in those who are at risk. We're only touching a fraction. And I think we have to also start on the preventative side. We're punishing tra trauma and young kids. It's not being addressed. They're not being healed. And they're growing up as hurt individuals that's inflicting their hurt on the community. We have to start understanding how to identify trauma and be more trauma responsive when we're dealing with young kids coming up in circumstances that's not really uh, conducive to any productive growth. We got to really focus on what Bilal said. We have to become more of a community. Uh, we can't put a lot of resources in, in, into law enforcement uh, because they're responsive. We got to start investing more in, in services, direct services that's going to address trauma and definitely help at-risk young men uh, with more opportunities to do things other than what they're doing now. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. Arnie, Chicago ended the year with 836 homicide most we've had in 20 years, shootings and carjackings and high-end retail thefts and strong arm robbery, they're all up. People are afraid. I understand the long-term needs that, that your two young men are talking about. However, Chicagoans wanna know what can we do right now to stop this explosion, this pandemic of violence? What do you propose? Well, there's never one answer. And obviously, we all feel that sense of urgency, Fran. It's in every community. It's on my block. It's, you know, literally, unfortunately, been in front of my house. And, I, you know, when I'm out in the communities like I am now, I, you know, I worry about my wife and kids at, at home and, you know, what, what used to be relatively safe Hyde Park. So this is touch, touching all of us. So never one simple answer. And I'll, I'll just say a couple things. Um, and I, I think Billy and Bilal answered it pretty, pretty perfectly. First of all, we have to take to scale our work with the, the men and the teens and the women who are most at risk of shooting and being shot. Violence, Fran, it's just like COVID. It's a public health crisis, it's a pandemic, and it travels through social networks. And collectively, and we work with amazing partners across the city. I'm in, I'm in the West Side now with the Myofa Redemption Project to do, doing amazing work here in Garfield Park. But collectively, we're reaching less than 10% of the young men um, at risk um, of shooting or, or being shot at the, at the most acute risk. And so while we are saving individual lives, and that's powerful and profound and, and moving, um, the virus is still spreading. The, the virus of violence is still spreading. So we have to take that to scale. Um, so that, that's, that work is on, on all of us. 
to, to try and reach as many folks as we can. Second problem would be what Billy said is the, is the prevention side. We focused, as you said earlier, in sort of 18 to 24, but we're, we're working with young guys as young as 14 and 15, 16, because unfortunately, as you know so well, um, they're also involved um, in the shootings, in the carjackings. And these are young guys. We have three groups of them um, who, are, who are basically raising themselves. And uh, they have role models, but the role models have been on the streets. And so what we're doing is you know, replacing those role models with folks on our team, folks like Billy and Bilal. We have amazing outreach workers and life coaches and clinicians who are helping those, those young men and women you know, start to behave in very different ways. But um, that, that those teens are at, at extraordinary risk. And then a, a third part of this, obviously, is we have to rebuild trust between the police and the community. And one of the biggest drivers, I would argue the biggest driver of, of violence in our city is retaliation. You know, on the streets, they call it getting, getting my lick back. And because almost no one um, goes to, goes, gets, gets arrested um, for shooting someone or, or, or killing them, when you don't have justice in the criminal uh, justice system, you get, you get street justice. And a huge amount of our work is really training our guys not to retaliate tragically when they're, you know, their family gets shot or they're, you know, unfortunately when their child gets shot or whatever happens. And, you know, that, that uh, if there are consequences, Fran, there's, there's so many myths, there's so many misconceptions out there. Nobody wants to go to jail. Everybody's scared of going to jail. Um, that's no badge of honor. Um, unfortunately, our young guys make the very real calculation that, that nobody cares when, 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 they, when they get shot. And so rebuilding trust with the community where there are actually consequences and folks who do shoot, um, you know, ha- have to pay a penalty. Um, that would go a long way to reducing the shootings here, here in the city. So multiple fronts, we've got to work at them all at scale with huge urgency at the same time. Now, you wrote an op-ed this week where you reiterated some of the themes you've sounded over the last year and a half or so. You have appeared before the City Club a number of times and talked about a $150 million to $200 million expansion of your violence prevention effort bankrolled by shrinking the police department through attrition and eliminating vacancies. You have argued that Chicago should lead the nation in reimagining public safety and that Chicago could reduce its police department to 10,000 sworn officers and still have enough to safely patrol the city and improve a homicide clearance rate that is in the 40s and other cities are double that. Uh, the mayor has had several speeches. She understands that her her future rises and falls on this violence and getting it under control. She had a speech at the end of the year. She had a news conference this week. They're talking about adding 100 or 200 detectives. They're talking about increasing positive interactions between citizens and police from 500,000 to a million and a half. She uh, reportedly threatened some of the top brass and talked about holding them accountable if they don't get the numbers up, uh, both in arrests and positive interactions and so on. What's wrong with her approach to this whole thing? No, I, I don't know if there's anything wrong. And I just think, again, it's, it's, these aren't sound bites. I'll just say a couple things. Um, first of all, we have too many men who we work with, like Bilal, who went to, to, to jail for crimes they didn't commit. And so if there's just an arbitrary, we're just going to lock up more folks. Bilal spent 15 years in jail for something he did not do. And um, it's just, I, I can't imagine <laughs> spending a day like that, let alone 15 years, and to come out with his humanity. And so, you know, that, that worries me. This is all about not, you know, numbers. It's really about, Fran, rebuilding trust. And let me give you a really positive example. In Rosen, where we started our work, 
there's a, a woman who's, who's now a, a sergeant with the police, uh, Vivian Williams. She was a detective. And what, what she did is she helped put in place our first, our first peace treaty. And um, we had two groups that had been in war. There had been a lot of bloodshed there. Um, they got tired of the shooting. They, got, they, got, uh, they wanted to do something different. And because she lived in the community, she lived right there. She worked there. She ran a daycare there. Um, they went to her to talk about a peace treaty. And that peace treaty has stood. We built a playground where before there was a war zone where, where kids on both sides could play. That's the kind of policing that we need where folks have real authentic relationships and real trust. So it's not about you know, this number, that number. It's about having folks in the community who trust, who walk the streets, who have relationships where the only dealing isn't when, when there's a, a crisis in time of tremendous trauma. That's what we need across the city. We need a lot more. Well, you uh, seem to be saying the same thing as the mayor, but she took aim at you and said what you're advocating is defunding the police. She said that was an insult to the police, the hardworking men and women, and that she will never stand for that. And that she is adamantly opposed. She called it insanity, what you're proposing. Well, uh, well, that's again, she's obviously entitled to her opinion. I think that's a little silly. I've never said we should defund the police. I absolutely think we have to rethink policing. And I, what I've said very clearly and repeatedly, Fran, is no, is that we ask the police to do way too much. I worry tremendously about their stress, their trauma, their mental health. Um, with the districts we work with, there have been uh, uh, just a heartbreaking number of suicides am- among police in this day. The, the lack of morale, morale is pretty devastating. I, I honestly, I think we, we ask police to do way too much. And I want them focused just on literally you know, solving, solving shootings, solving homicides, and so many things around you know, parking tickets and mental health issues and homeless issues and other things. We should give that to other folks, other professionals to do that. Let police focus on reducing the violent crime that is devastating our city. And so um, I, I just wonder, you know, I think we have to fundamentally rethink policing. By any measure, what we're doing isn't working. Um, I think we ask police to do way too much. And I would love to reduce, the, I don't want to say the, the unimportant things they're doing, but I would say less important. And frankly, other professionals could provide many, many, many of those services and let them focus on, again, this, this pandemic, this public health crisis of violence that's having such a devastating impact um, on our kids, on our families, and our communities, and our city. But you are talking about shrinking the department by attrition, which ironically she did in her first budget. She eliminated 614 police vacancies. And now we're way below that. We're a thousand below that because police officers are quitting in droves. They are retiring in droves. They are transferring to suburban and out-of-state departments in droves because they can't take it anymore. They feel like the mayor doesn't have their back. They're having their days off canceled yet again this week, and they're sick of it. And they think that her policies have tied their hands into a pretzel. Yeah, there are lots of different ways to come at this, Fran. Again, that was just one one thought experiment. What I'm basically advocating for is that we need to do a lot more on the prevention side. We need to do a lot more to stop these young guys from shooting. We need to do a lot more street outreach, a lot more clinicians. Um, when you don't deal with the trauma, as Billy said so eloquently, uh, was the saying we have that hurt people hurt people. And that's what we're seeing across the city. We say have hurt people hurting other folks. And what we've worked so hard to do, and it's, it's, um, it's not linear, it's, we have amazing days and we have heartbreaking days, but what we do is help people who have been hurt, people who have lived with a lifetime of trauma, we help them heal. And when they do that, healed people don't just heal themselves, um, they heal their families, they help to heal the communities. 
Um, so many of our guys who were caught in those cycles of violence, either as perpetrators or victims or both, and many folks are it's often the same person, are now leading this movement for peace. And I say all the time, Fran, that the men and women we work with, the teens, they aren't the problem. They're the solution to the problem. We have to walk with them. We have to learn from them. We have to listen to them. And they're going to lead us to a safer city. But you have said that for every $1 Chicago spends on preventing violence, the city spends $150 on policing and that that ratio is out of whack. So you are proposing to reduce the funding on police and put it into violence prevention. That, that, that's one way to do it, Fran. Obviously, another way to do that would just bring additional resources from the, you know, from the federal government, from, from all the, the money that uh, President Biden has brought to communities across the country, and just increase on the prevention side. And there's an old saying that you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. What we've had, basically, Fran, is an arrest-only strategy. And because almost no one gets arrested, um, that's, that's a broken system. And what I would love to do is have a lot more social workers and counselors and life coaches and outreach workers in these communities at scale so that we're reaching the, 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 the number of men we need to, to, to mitigate this virus and to see it decrease at the community level. We have to move from individual transformation, which again has been just amazingly inspiring and I would say you know, some of the hardest work I've ever done, but I would say you know, some of the most important. We have to move from individual transformation to neighborhood violence suppression. And we're going to try and do that uh, in North Lawndale starting this year uh, in 2022, Fran. With, we have a number of funding partners. We have other uh, community groups coming together. Um, we've been working with about 200 men in North Lawndale, which sounds like a lot. And it's, it's, you know, it's important. But according to the USC Crime Labs, there are 1,100 men, 1,100 men acutely at risk of shooting and being shot in North Lawndale. So we're still reaching less than 20%. And so we're going to try and scale starting this year together. And um, as you know, Fran, we only have, you know, 12 to 15 neighborhoods that are producing 70 to 80 percent of the violence here in Chicago. And so we have to really be concentrated. And we're hoping um, you know, we'll make mistakes. Um, this is messy work. It's, it's never easy. We'll, we'll you know, fail at some things. But we're hoping the model we can build in North Lawndale uh, can be replicated in the other neighborhoods that are, that are being plagued by the, by the trauma and the resulting violence. But Lightfoot says she has devoted an extraordinary amount of federal stimulus money to build those local resources. What is she not doing that you want her to do? Well, it's, it's, not, it's not her. It's, it's all of us, Fran. It's, it's the private sector. It's philanthropy. It's the city. It's the county. It's the state and the federal government. I'm, I'm just being very clear, Fran. We have to reach you know, multiple thousands of men, not 500 men, not 1,000, you know, ten, you know, tens of thousands of men. We have to reach them. And then the teens who are on that pipeline to go in that way. And we have to be um, holistic in our approach. We have to be comprehensive. We have to wrap around um, all the services they need to get out of this lifestyle. And we've seen, um, we've had you know, pro, bowling, pro bono consulting groups like Bain come and do very, very significant work on the cost benefit analysis. And what it shows, Fran, is a 19 to 1 ROI for every dollar that we invest on the front end, we, we get back as taxpayers $19. It'd be the best investment we can make. You know, forget about saving lives, forget about all the you know, amazing talent and genius we lose, forget about the trauma and heartbreak. And so that, that's, that's the direction that we all have to move in collectively and understand that we can't just arrest our way out of this. We want police to focus on, you know, uh, you know, uh, finding those folks that are committing these crimes, but we have to give people a chance to change their lives. And that's what we haven't done. Business leaders in this city are worried about Chicago's future. 
have any of them approached you and asked you to consider running for mayor? Oh, a, a number of people have uh, have approached me, you know, business community, whatever it might be. But, I'm, you know, I'm not running for anything right now. I'm just but I am deeply concerned about where we are as a as a, as a city. And nobody, you know, nobody feels we're in a good place. Um, we have to get to a better place and we have to do it together. And uh, I've spent my life, you know, working on teams and whether it's in, in sports or in education or part of the Obama administration, you just want to build a, a really strong team to work on these really hard problems together and have everybody on the same page and, and you know, being honest and working through these tough issues together. And that, that's what I'd love to see happen um, here in the city. But if you truly believe, as they do, that Chicago is at a crossroads, don't you have a responsibility to get off the sidelines and do something about it? Can you afford to sit back at your nonprofit when so many of the solutions emanate from City Hall, from the mayor's office. Yeah, well, to be clear, I'm not sitting back. I'm on the west side this morning. I'll be in Rosen on the south side tomorrow. I'll be out with outreach over the weekend. So I'm in communities every day. You know, I just bounce to all our different sites and our partner sites, talking with our young guys, learning from them, you know, working with them and doing everything we can to help. And so uh, it, it's something I'll, you know, I'll, if I think it can make a difference, I'll think more about it down the road um, in a you know, different seat, but that's still a long ways off. And I found just very, very honest. I mean, what I'm dealing with right now today, seeing we're talking today is what the woman who does an amazing job. She's one of our therapists. She runs our, our women's program, uh, Nicole Muhammad. Uh, unfortunately, uh, her son's house was shot up last night. Their son's a teacher. Thank God he wasn't hit. But that's what I'm focused on today is how do we support <laughs> Nicole Muhammad and her son? I understand you what you focus on right now today, Arnie, but you can walk and chew gum. You, you can play basketball and walk and chew gum. You can do all those things. Under what circumstances would you consider running for mayor in 2023? Yeah, I, I really just not not at that point, um, you know, uh, at, at this point, I'm just really focused on doing the work. I'm focused on learning. I'm focused on trying to continue to scale the work we're doing. Um, there's no one answer here, but this is, I think, a huge part of the answer. We have an amazing network of nonprofits across the city who are committed to doing this work and how we all be good teammates and help each other and be good partners and challenge each other and, and get better at this work. Um, that's what I'm focused on now. Does, is the door open even a crack to that? Oh, no, I, I said, Pam, I'm, I'm, you know, we'll absolutely look at this, you know, as we go forward long-term. And if I think I can make a bigger difference in another sit, uh, seat, I'm, I would absolutely look at that. But that's, that's an, an awful long ways off uh, right now. Well, it's not an awful long ways off, Arnie. As a matter of fact, it's, it's uh, the, the primary is about a year away. So we're, we're gearing up in Chicago well, for a mayor's race in a couple of months. You have to make up your mind in a few months. Okay. You do I, that? I, 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 of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Um, the Chicago public schools that you once led are closed yet again to in-person learning. Another standoff between this mayor and the Chicago Teachers Union. Uh, we had a strike. We had a near strike. Now we have a walkout. And the parents are furious and they are you worried that more parents are going to pull their kids out of this system that's been hemorrhaging kids already? Uh, I, I'm not. I mean, that's that's a fact. And that's not it's, it's beyond a worry. And it's just such a sad, such a sad situation to be in. And it's, it's just as I look at, you know, I talk to superintendents across the country 
uh, you know, to the best of my knowledge, Chicago is the only school district that's, that's shut down now. And um, so that's not COVID that closed down the, the, the district. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's adult dysfunction. And it's just like, it's, it's like parents. It's like a family family. You have two parents when, when they're fighting, um, kids lose. And I just think, <laughs> obviously I'm passionate about this, but I think every day of school is just sacred. Our, our, so many of our children live below the poverty line. Their best chance for breaking those cycles of poverty by getting a good education. So many of our children live with food insecurity. And I remember when I was at CPS, we would send a couple, a couple thousand kids home very quietly, very discreetly with backpacks full of food on weekends because we worried about them not eating, you know, um, uh, before they came back to school on, on Monday. And our children desperately need to be in school. They need to be, you know, it's just a sacred, it's a sacred thing. And they need to be around positive adults who care about them. And right now, because adults are fighting, um, our kids are losing, our families who are you know, working hard and trying to go to work are losing. And it just, it, it, it breaks my heart, Fran. That's all I can say. It breaks my heart. This, when you say adult dysfunction, do you include the mayor in that? Because she claims that this union is about more than this issue. They're a political movement. They're a political party. And they're determined to oppose her at every step. They opposed her in the election. They've endorsed Preckwinkle in 2019. And they are determined to run a candidate or back a candidate against her. And it's all about politics. Do you think her personality and her approach to governing has contributed and exacerbated this tension? Yeah, I don't want to, you know, so again, this the specifics. I'm very hopeful. Obviously, it's not going to be resolved this week, but my my just my greatest hope is that everyone's back in school uh, on Monday. And I just think we haven't, we don't begin to understand how much our kids have already lost. This is the third school year impacted by COVID. And it's such an abnormal traumatic experience for children not to be around their peers not to be around adults who care about them, not to be around coaches who care about them. And the part, friend, that no one focuses on that really you know, troubles me, it's not just missing the school day, it's all the extracurriculars. It's dance, it's drama, it's art, it's sports, it's academic decathlon, it's robotics, it's Model UN, it's yearbook. It's all those things that just go out the window when our, when our schools shut down physically. Our children desperately need those things to be healthy, to find their passion, to find their genius. And adults... You know, got to just put, you know, personal animosity, other issues to the side, come together again. Not not every, you know, not every, you know, parents are, you know, stay totally in love with each other, whatever. But you got to find ways to do what's right for your for your children. But and where that's, is that's the adult dysfunction on her end, on Lori well, Lightfoot's I, end? I, I, I'm, again, I don't really want to you know, comment on any one one side or one. I just think we have to come together and see the bigger picture. We have to fight for our kids. We have to fight. And for before our we let you go. Does yeah. Lori Lightfoot, given her record at this point and the problems that she's had in getting along with people at all levels, does she deserve re-election? Well, again, we'll, we'll see. And she's been dealt a tough hand. You know, COVID's been been a really tough thing that everyone's had to do, do, you know work through. And I think she's done a pretty good job of that. But our, our city's in a, in a very tough spot. And, you know, I've lived here all my life. I love the city. As I talk to folks, folks are probably more concerned now than at any time that I can remember. And collectively, not individually, collectively, we have to get to a better place. We have to do it together. We have to build the kind of teamwork and camaraderie. We will tackle these hard problems together. Um, that's what we need from, from every part, from every part of the city. From every you haven't part. answered the question, does she deserve to be reelected? 
Well, that'll be up to the voters, you know, and she's got, you know, she's got some time that that's not for me to determine. That'll be up to, to the voters of the city. And she's, she's, you know, she's worked hard and, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. She may or may not want to run again. And uh, it's, it's, um, it's a tough job. It's a tough job. Is it a job you want? I, I love the job I have. And we'll see over time. Okay. Arnie Duncan. Again, Happy New Year. Thank you to the young men that join you or not so young men. And we wish you all the best in the new year. And we're going to wait to see what happens politically, too. And we will see you all next week. Thanks so much, Fran. Take care now.